Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 3rd, 2015, and this is episode 1600 and I don't know, what is it, 1638 of the Survival Podcast. I do know that it's a Thursday. That means it's going to be a show with your calls. I think I have seven or eight calls lined up. One kind of just a little bit of a, a funny one, but a serious one at the same time. And uh, we'll be taking those in a bit. Uh, before we do, let's uh, go ahead and hear from our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure that the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold... I go to jambullion.com, and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing. And that means as, uh, as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you. And I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You get the same Silver Eagle from JM Bullion as you do from Atmex or Monex. It's exactly the same. It's the same purity, it's the same weight, it's the same design, it's the same cut. It is the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball, whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's the same. That's the point. So why pay more? So why not deal with a company that's a small company, that has great customer service, that offers free shipping on all orders, and has better pricing when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that, like, you need to get out of the dollar. They're going to burn it to the ground. It's going to be worthless tomorrow. By the way, give me your dollars, and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor, of the, the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is, is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth, roughly, in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a wealth assurance program of 5 to 10% of your net wealth in hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than JM Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from JM Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, 
raw herbs and herbal supplements and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you. And if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium membership 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode 1638, now that I remember it. So the year 1638, I have the Caribbean superpower of Belize. And then I have what it means to be true blue. I'm going to read the Caribbean or Caribbean, depending on how you pronounce it, superpower of Belize. The Mayans have lived in Belize since the time of Moses, but the first European landing occurs this year when a shipwrecked group of British loggers built a few huts near the old river, now known as the Belize River. This is the bare beginnings of the city of Belize and the colony of British Honduras on the Yucatan Peninsula. Spanish Honduras is further south. Belize will soon become a base for British privateers, otherwise known as pirates, Legend has it that the name Belize comes from a particularly successful Scottish pirate, the Spanish called Belize, B-E-L-L-I-S-E, whatever, Belize. Uh, but records of this time are unreliable. Apparently, pirates are not good record keepers. By the 1680s, regular English colonists will establish British Honduras and log the trees to be made into, into dyes for wool. Later, they will harvest mahogany and eventually plant sugarcane. The name will change from British Honduras to Belize in 1973. The country will achieve full independence from Great Britain in 1981. My take by Alex Shrug that puts these history segments together for us at tspwiki.com. During the first Gulf War, President Bush, the elder, emphasized that Belize was contributing troops to the war effort. It wasn't very many troops, but it was a proportional contribution based on its population size. However, President Bush devoted so much time to the subject that it became embarrassing. I began substituting in my mind the Caribbean superpower of Belize every time he mentioned it. It is an English-speaking country, and I had, it attained its independence from England around the time of the Gulf War. Maybe that's why pres the president was so delighted to welcome it into the family of nations, so to speak. 
I've seen the commercials inviting U.S. citizens to visit Belize. It sure looks pretty, but as John McAfee of McAfee Antivirus found out, Belize has its problems. It's called a third world country for a reason. I picked this one to talk about McAfee, John McAfee, because I think a lot of people have no idea about this. They got, you know, McAfee software. Many of us have this on our computers to protect us from viruses and all. McAfee ended up uh, on the wrong side of the law and he took off to Belize. He ended up in a Guatemalan jail. So his bigger problems were in Guatemala. And trust me, if I'm going to have problems in Belize or Guatemala, I'll take Belize, please. Um, and then he uh, eventually got out of there, and he has now run off to Canada. He's making his home in Montreal now, hanging out and digging the art scene in Montreal. So things did work out for Mr. McAfee. If you want to know more, you can just Google John McAfee Belize, and you'll find all kinds of information about how that all went down and why he had to haul ass. My take by Jack Spirico. Sometimes it's fun to just know what, what happened in recent events, not just in the very deep past of history. Anyway, with that, I am ready to uh, get into the main show. I want to remind you before I do, though, we still have a couple seats remaining for the TSP November workshop that's going to focus on microgreens and quail and establishing sibo pasture and all kinds of other great stuff. And I am uh, happy to tell you that we also have an Earthworks course that I'm doing with Nick Ferguson uh, in Louisiana. It's really his course, this, this second one. I'm going to have Nick on in a minute to talk about that, so I'll leave that go there. But just want to let you know, again, guys, you can still sign up for the November workshop. Uh, I don't know how many seats we have left. I actually have to go count because I might have put too many in the inventory and I might have to take a few out of there. So I think we're getting pretty close to full up for that one. But uh, we do have a few left. Again, that's the week of November 11th. Veterans Day week will be when that one is. And if you want to help support the show and the work I do, consider joining the MSB. Just go to the Survival Podcast, click on Members to learn more about that. With that, I do want to bring Nick Ferguson on right now to uh, to talk to us about the Earthworks workshop that's going on out in Louisiana at Permaculture Classroom. Uh, this is a, a far different workshop than what we're going to be doing here in October and November, and I wanted to bring Nick on to talk to you about it. And with that, hey, Nick, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, man. Always good to be here again. So, look, I have you on, you know, just kind of do a quick segment about this Earthworks course that you and I will be teaching at your uh, your farmstead in Saline, Louisiana. Can you just tell people kind of what we're going to be doing there? Yeah, so um, finally, after years of helping other people get their farmsteads and homesteads and big acreage farms all set up and swaled and ponded all out the wazoo, I finally get to do mine. So we're going to be putting in three duck ponds, all connected with swales, the whole uppermost part of the property. It's relatively flat, but I do have some elevation change. But we're going to have a swale that wraps all the way around the high point on the property, connecting these three ponds. Um, we're going to be putting in some market garden space. It's it's going to be really, really cool, the, the connections between the water features. Yeah, and I'll tell you what I'm excited about as is, is your co-instructor with this is actually being able to take students and do that. Um, as you know, we just put a pond in here and, uh, mm -hmm. it, it was just short of dynamite to get a 50,000 gallon hole in the ground. <laughs> you have this stuff called dirt, like sand and clay stuff there that we can mm -hmm. dig in. Uh, and I think it's gonna be great for students to actually see 
a, a Lawton-esque design, and, and that's what this is going to be. With like I, I said on the post about it, with the Ferguson sauce, right? So we're going to actually be able to have students walk through and do the type of design that they've watched video after video after video of Jeff Lawton doing, because we have a place where it's an appropriate type of installation. Right, right, and and what's cool is we'll be able to show you how to put these features in your landscape with just manpower, with a rented excavator, with uh, borrowing a, a neighbor's tractor with just a two-bottom plow kind of thing, or just a front bucket on a on a tractor. You know, it's, we've done a lot with that on other properties now. Um, if you really want to put a good-sized pond in, you're going to have to get a little bit bigger equipment, but the uh, That was your idea, using the two-bottom plow, and we were able to put a lot of swill in really quick with that up in West Virginia. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a great great way to do it. It's quick. It's cheap. It's easy. You know, you're not putting in massive, you know, eight-foot-wide and three-foot-deep swales like that, but most people don't need swales like that. Yeah, those big swales are really, they're ideally suited for filling dams. Right. They, right. They, they do a great job of infiltrating water, but you can only infiltrate so much water anyway. They're great tree growing systems. But if you look at all the large scale installations someone like Jeff Lawton's done, the, the end of those swales, there's always a pond. It's not like it's just a, a swale that ends, right? Right, right. And, you know, those, those bigger scaled, uh, swale systems, those are more towards the, you know, more towards the dryland applications where you're, you're planning for a flood event and you want to capture all that water and not let any of it leave. Or the tropics where you have to deal with it over and over and over for nine straight months. Right, right. You know, that's, that's, that's like the two applications I've seen those mainframe swales go into at that size. But what you're doing is actually fairly significant in size though. Yeah, yeah, we're going to be, uh, I think I'm estimating the, you know, these are small duck ponds. These are made for, I'm designing this for fertigation of, of the whole system. Um, this is not, uh, swimming in the ponds. It's going to be, you know, liquid fertilizer. So we're looking at anywhere from 45 to 80,000 gallons, um, between the swales and the ponds. And, uh, we've got a, a, a couple more, um, downgrade features that we're going to be showing you how to how to connect these all through and and harvest all the the nutrient that you can before it leaves your system. I've got a lot of a lot of functions that we're stacking in the whole system and and some complicated things and some really cool things. So it'll be really interesting. So we're, we're what we're really going to be doing is heavy earthworks for the first two days and then kind of moving on to some additional skills on the third day. Right. Yeah. So we've got uh, Chris Prater is going to be coming and and uh, teaching y'all how to put together your own Langstroth beehives just from scratch. So talk about a big savings if if you're getting ready for bees in the spring. Being able to put together your own Langstroth beehives, if you're going with that uh, style of management, that'll that'll save you hundreds and hundreds of dollars right there. And of course, you you're like uh, the, the propagation expert. I put up a slide of you out in California this year with uh, the fact that you propagate kids pretty well, but you're pretty good at propagating plants too. <laughs> so we're going to cover that as well. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. We're going to go into plant propagation. I'll show y'all how to use my use uh, mist system, and uh, we'll actually. I'll show y'all how to uh, take some hardwood cuttings, which will, which a lot of people will be getting ready to do um, about that time in a lot of the U.S. I won't be doing that until 
around December, but uh, but we'll show you how to do all that. It'll be a lot of fun. We'll be getting some some seed uh, stratifying then too, um, seed that I'll be planting in the spring in my uh, in the swales that we're going to be digging. Yeah, this is going to be really a great event. I just wanted to have you on briefly to discuss it, and uh, people can now find it on your website and sign up for it. Yep, yep, at permacultureclassroom.com. I've got uh I've got some stuff on the front page, but if you want to uh, see all the the details of it, then just go to classes and events, and you'll see a little drop down with Earthworks Workshop. And guys, get on out to it. I know we're running two here at Nine Mile Farm this year, but those are more of a, a general skills type of thing. This is really going to focus heavily on earthworks installations, uh, water system movement, and function stacking throughout the homestead. And uh, Nick is a great guy to learn from. Uh, I will be there with him uh, as his co-instructor because he's going to be spending an awful lot of time up on the machine. He's gotten to be a pretty good earth surgeon. Um, and Nick, talk about that. Like you know, a couple of years ago, I was out there with you and. You're using this backhoe to put some stuff in, and it, it was kind of tough the first time. But uh, for people that are wondering, like, once they learn this, you know, do they need to hire an operator? If they got a place they can play around with it, talk about how quickly you can really learn to use that equipment. Oh, yeah. So um, that actually wasn't the first time I'd been on equipment. That was just a janky old uh, <laughs> crotchety backhoe <laughs> that's got awful hydraulics. So... I mean, it, it was really hard to get precise movements out of that thing. But, man, if you can get on one of these newer um, mini-Xs, they're smooth. And, and once, you, once you figure out the controls, now there's generally two different sets of controls. There's cat controls and there's uh, deer controls. So John Deere controls and uh, Caterpillar. And for me, uh, if I get on a machine and it's got deer controls... I'm flying all over the place, and I don't know what is up and down and sideways, but you switch it over to cat controls for me, and it, it just feels like that boom is an extension of, of your arm. So, and it, it's, it's really quick to pick up, and it's really fun. So, uh, um, well, I, I kind of want to point out, like, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about doing and do out there, I don't know what size excavator you're going you're gonna to rent uh, yeah. for this. In fact, what size of excavator are you going to rent for this? Um, well, I'm I'm actually pricing them out right now, so we don't know exactly what size. It's probably going to be around ten, fifteen tons. Okay. So it's not it's not going to be very big. But it's still a mid size, like because what I yeah. want to point out is like we did a ton of work with like a sixty six hundred pound machine here and up in West Virginia, and that's a great size machine to to to, to learn on. And the stuff you're going to be doing for a lot of people, that would be a, a, a sizable enough machine for them to use on their property. And I just want to kind of point out how affordable it can be. So there's a place right down the road here. Remember where we rented the one for the last one we used here? Yep. Um, daily rentals, 200 bucks. Weekly rental is $790. You can rent one for a month for $2,300. Yeah, that's I mean, nice. that machine, if you, if you like say, okay, what if I hired five kids with shovels and paid them a minimum wage, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're going to get to $2,300 doing things wrong really, really quick before mm-hmm. you wear out that $2,300 on that machine. And I think oh, yeah. you do delivery for a hundred bucks each way. So, I mean, even if you can't go get it yourself, um, and I'm not saying everybody everywhere can get a machine for that price, but. You know, those, it's a little Komatsu's, again, they're about 6,600 pounds, three, about three tons. They're a workhorse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my price around here is about double that. But, sure. uh, but, but, but a uh, machine, too. Oh, yeah. So, you know, 
for a you know a lot of you closer to a, a bigger metropolitan area, yeah, you can get them a lot cheaper. Um, and gosh, you can move so much soil with them so fast. And if you're doing smaller scale stuff, I definitely recommend you make sure you get one that has a blade on the front because that blade can move a lot of dirt. Um, you know, that's another good thing to, to point out. I was just talking to the contractor who did my pond, and he said a lot of times as you start to order or try to, to get a rental on these really big excavators, mm-hmm. they won't give you one with a blade. Yeah. Because morons take a machine with 16,000 pounds of breakout force and pull it back into the blade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But those little machines almost always come with that front blade. Yeah. And yeah. It can do a lot of work, guys. It really can. Well, anyway, man, I'm glad to have you on today. Um, again, let folks know how they can sign up and, and what the dates are and the cost. Yep. Okay. So it's, uh, 500 bucks. It is, uh, October 22nd through the 24th. And just like all of Jack's events, you can show up the, the evening before, afternoon before to get all set up. We have tons of camping space, more, uh, hammock spots than you know what to do with. And this is in Saline, Louisiana. And, uh, Man, I hope to see a whole bunch of people out there. And folks, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you one word of advice for going to the next place. It's not like mine. There is not a five or six convenience stores full of microbrews five minutes away. If you want to bring some good beer with you to drink, bring it with you. You're not gonna to want to run back <laughs> to the store for it. You might find some natural light about thirty minutes away, but other than that, uh, bring bring what you want with you for those three days. Yep, we are out in the woods. Um, cell signal is sketchy at best. Um, if anyone needs to use a phone, you, you're welcome to use my landlines. We do have Wi-Fi and everything. Um, if if 30 people are trying to use it all at the same time, it's going to really bog down. But um, we do have connectivity, but we are out in the woods. So if you need anything, bring it with you. Don't expect that there's a Walmart nearby. The closest Walmart is half an hour. <laughs> The closest decent Walmart is 45 minutes. Yeah, it's more like yeah. an hour. But if, if you need your cell signal, guys, I got it figured out. I know exactly where to stand under a power line and catch a signal. I'll show <laughs> you that with Nick. With, with that, Nick, hey, man, have a great day. Thanks, man. And with that, folks, we're going to roll on into the show and start taking your calls. Hey, Jack. This is Nathaniel in southwest Washington. I need some advice on forging my own career path. About a year ago, I made a career change and took a pay cut from doing factory work to a residential electrical apprentice program. And I'd like to eventually make my way into building my own company doing residential electrical and specializing in off-grid power for cabins or people who decide to go off-grid completely. And I want to know, aside from the apprenticeship, what else I should be looking at for business building and possibly for specializing in solar and other, other power systems like that and how I get through the regulatory process. I went from doing factory work for wiring ambulances and other emergency vehicles like that. So the change hasn't been too drastic, but okay, let, let's, big change. Thanks for the help, Jack. I appreciate it. Regulatory hurdles. I mean, um, when we, you start looking at regulatory hurdles, that you might as well say uh, purple monkey dishwashers, right? Um, I have no idea what your regulatory hurdles are. And even if I knew every single regulatory hurdle that you had to deal with, to do what you're going to do in, in, in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, it wouldn't mean anything at all, period, infinity, as to what you're going to have to do locally. So on, on some levels, that's part of what you should be getting out of this internship. 
you know what what is what is required of a person to be able to do this and what is required of a person to be able to uh to run a business doing this type of work i mean and you're in electrical work so there's all different types of things that change based on what you're going to be doing um there's probably different requirements for off grid versus on grid because when you're on grid you have a potential not just to do harm to your customer but to do harm like a lineman you know a, a, a thousand a thousand feet or a thousand yards or a couple miles away uh with, with power being backfed when it's not supposed to be uh with with solar backup and things like that so those are two different worlds but i'm sure that if you're going to be doing commercial electrical work there there's 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 some you know licensing and things like that and you need to find that out on your own there's absolutely no way in the world uncle jack can help you with that one Now, as far as building your your career uh, path, if your goal is business ownership in the, in this world, um, I think it's great that you're taking an internship, and but I think you have to start thinking about as a business if you're going to do this as a business owner. There, there's two ways that people consider themselves business owners, and one is some people have a full time job working as a contractor and consider that business ownership, and in many ways it's better. It's absolutely better than being an employee, but it's still like a job. You have to do everything. Most people that want to own a business want to have a business as an operational mechanism that means that a call comes in, somebody wants a quote for the installation of work at an off-grid cabin somewhere on the side of a mountain. And if someone goes out there and looks at the job and evaluates and says, here's what it's going to cost, and then the customer says, yes, that, that may or may not be you. But let's say that it is you. Then a crew goes in and does the work. There's purchasing that has to be done for materials. Does the customer do it or do you do it for them and add a markup fee? Do you deliver the materials? Do they acquire the materials and you come do the installation? How does that all work? Is that all going to be you? See, if you are the one doing the work, and there is a, 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 there is a place for bootstrapping things in the beginning to get it off the ground. But if you're doing all that work, you're not really a business owner. You're a contractor. You're a contractor that contracts your work individually. If you're going to be a business owner, then there has to be a certain level of operations management of that whole entity so that there can actually be two jobs going at the same time. That requires employees or subcontractors or however you formulate that. So what I would tell you is that you know right now you do need to be learning how the installations go in how do you how do you run power how do you put power down what what has to be all the things that you're learning are great but they don't really help you with business ownership if you knew how to run and operate a business and had a basic understanding of of your market you could not know how to put one wire down and start a business doing this with other people doing the work it's capital intensive that way But so the only reason I bring that up is to point out to you that those are two different things, and it's a, something that a lot of people don't really understand when they've never run a business before. That the business ownership is about being a master of the craft. Well, I don't have to be the master of a craft to be an owner in a business. I was a partner in a business that did technical recruiting. Now, I'm a pretty good sales guy, and I guess I could be a technical recruiter, but I've never technically recruited anybody in my life for a third party. I've never at once had somebody say, Jack, we need a guy that's experienced in these 10 areas, and we need him uh, to do a project in California for six months. And said, so let me find you a person, and then went down and hunted that guy down and found him and did up all that. No, I never did any of that. But I was an owner in a company that did. But we had people employed that did that job. 
See, and those are two, see, I'm trying to, just trying to draw this out so that you can kind of extract yourself and decide, well, what is it that you really want to do? Do you want to do the work or do you want to build a company that does the work? And here's the thing. I'm not telling you which you want to do. Either one's okay. You need to be clear on that because the, the far more important things about you turning this into a business are things like the sales and marketing, the operations of the business itself, how to market material, where to source material, how to have multiple points where you can source material from so when something doesn't come through, you, can, you don't have a customer sitting out there waiting on you. Uh, basic customer service, how you deal with the customer. Uh, putting together professional quotations instead of just saying, oh, this is going to be $35,000. Really? Okay, yeah. How about putting together? So so when, when your company that you're apprenticing with goes out and somebody sells that job, you know, and I, I don't know the, the details of your apprenticeship. They might say, that's not what you're here for. But, I mean, part of what you need to try to be learning is, well, how's that process work? Who, who goes there? What's the sales flow like? You know? And, and what is this, is this company doing full-on installations? Are they doing, I mean... It, whether they're working for individuals or companies doing custom build, or are they just doing residential electrical service? It's all different. So you got to start separating those two worlds, and, and I think you, you you probably aren't ready to ask the question you're asking yet because I don't think you have. Uh, I don't mean to put you down or anything. I'm just saying that's. I mean it's normal. It, it's how things work for people. Um. And then the other thing is you got to think really hard. You want to specialize in off-grid cabins. Well, this is the first thing I'd say before you marry yourself that idea. What is the total value of that market in the area that you would serve? How much of that business exists if you had 100% of it? Until you know that number, do not say you're going to specialize in anything. Because you're not going to create that market. That market is what it is. It might expand some as more and more people want to live that way. But the reality is there's not that many people that are putting in off-grid cabins that are going to hire someone to come do all the work for them. So maybe there's more than I think there is. But what? So how do you how do you determine that? You have to start talking to people. You start finding people that do that work. Imagine you're now the customer, and the company you're apprenticing for doesn't sound like the company that does that work. So who who in your area does this kind of business? That's kind of what you have to start looking at first and foremost. Who does this? In your area. And um, once you know that, then you start with how long have they been in business? How many customers do they have? Uh, what kind of portfolio do they have on their website? If, if you can't find anybody that does it as a specialty, and all you can find are companies that will do that as an also, like we do this, 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 and this, and we'll do this, that tells you that market's limited. So I think you need to do some real, here, here's your steps right now. Determine how you, what you mean by business. Where do you want to be in that business? As, as, as basically a small company made with one or two apprentices working with you all the time and doing all the work yourself, or an operations level, level business, and what's the pathway to get there? Determine the market for that business. Is there sufficient revenue existing in that market? Because when I said find out how much 100% of that business is, you ain't getting 100%. You're likely to get 10 in two or three years. To take 10% of the market in two to three years would be a success. If that number is not enough to operate a business, that doesn't mean you don't do that. It just means you don't only do that, right? Because you don't want to tell somebody, I specialize in off-grid cabins when you're more than happy to take business doing something else in the electrical field because they'll say, well, that's not the guy I'm looking for. See, the niche is, well, I, that's exactly the guy I'm looking for. Well, are there enough of those niche guys? 
you got to determine that market value. And you got to learn more about the company you're working for, what they're doing, and see if there are ways with your apprenticeship to get in to visibility to other parts of the company. Right? And that might be you, you have to be there a while, do your thing a while, and say, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to tag along one day on a sales call. I'd like to see, you know, what do you guys do with marketing? How do you, how do you market to business? I'd like to know more about the whole operations of the company. Uh, which is, is a valuable thing. If I have you as an intern, you want to learn that because I might have a place for you in the company outside of just being a tech. Some of my best salespeople I ever worked with had good technical ability. So you, you got some work to do there. I think there's a lot of people like that. They think, well, I'm going to get this one thing. I had an email from a guy recently. Do you know of any members of your community that need something engineered or re-engineered because I've been an engineer and I want my own business? I, I'm sorry if you're out there. I didn't respond because I don't know how to respond to that. I mean, it. That's not how you go into business. You have to you have to you have to know what you're what you're bringing to the market, and you have to make a very clear understanding of that to your market. So I think that's where you kind of have to start formatting this. Start building the business on paper. How would it operate? Who would it serve? What is the market cap? Start building a basic flow business plan for that business, and that'll tell you the answers of what you need to learn, where you need to acquire capital, where you need to acquire additional expertise, and do you even really want to do this, or do you want to maybe shape it a little bit differently? Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Rihanna Stone with the Pagan Homesteader. Hey, my question for you today is about how you're setting up uh, your drainage for your uh, duck pools. I think you had said a while back on an episode that you had some concrete pads that you were setting there uh, pools on and you were connecting a drainage system to that to be able to empty the pools on a regular basis. And I was wondering if you could go into some more detail of how you're setting that up um, and how to do that in a way that it won't get clogged with all the dirt and poop and stuff that ends up in the water. Uh, we recently uh, got some ducks and uh, of course we've had geese for a while. Uh, but we have an old bathtub that we were given, an oval-shaped garden tub, and we had thought about setting that up as like a little pool in their pen for them. Uh, but my concern has always been how to set up the drainage to easily drain that and get it where we want it to go without the pipes getting clogged up uh, with all the stuff that ends up in there. Um, and also I just wanted to add as a side note for any of your listeners who might be thinking about cold frame to their gardening. If you haven't done one, I would really encourage you to do one. We have a cold frame my husband built for me about four years ago, and I have a Swiss chard plant that is now about four years old. I put it in there that year, and when winter came, we didn't harvest it. We just left it alone because we thought it would die, and we just kind of left the top on it um, to help protect it, and we haven't done anything to it, and it keeps going. It's never died on us in four years, which is unheard of for that type of a plant. So anyway, so for anybody who's thinking about that, um, do add a uh, cold frame to your uh, garden. And if you give me some information about the drainage system, I would appreciate it. Thanks. Okay, let's, let's be clear about what we're talking about here, because uh, I'm not sure Rihanna is or not. I can't really tell. So um, this is drainage not for the pools that they're they're out playing in right now, that they're out during the daytime in. At night, when we put them to bed, they have an area of, oh, I'd guess a 20th of an acre, if that. Uh, pretty big fenced-in area. It's all completely lined uh, with about four inches deep of uh, wood chips. That's where they spend their nights. They have their house there. They have a little secondary small house there, and uh, they're fed mostly there. That way that they uh, they kind of see that as home and they go back there. And that keeps them in a place where all the eggs in the morning, most anyway, we still find some here and there with Easter egg hunts, are all in one place. That way it makes ease of collection. 
So every night they go to bed, every morning they go out and about, and they come and go as they please all day long. And at the end of the night, all ducks go to bed, and then all ducks go to bed. So we actually go out there and we say that. We say, all ducks go to bed, and they line up and they, they go into bed with one or two holdouts. And uh, so that's, that's the place that we're talking about. So first of all, we have to understand this is the holding area. In that place, I tried to do a poop-free duck waterer, and I learned something very quick, that a lot of the muck and guck and goop inside uh, duck waterers are not from poop. It is actually from them cleaning out their beaks. And I looked at doing nipples, the, the, the water nipples, but what I've learned with ducks also is very quickly it seems that they realize, oh, water comes out of there, and, and, and they won't just do it to drink uh, like a chicken will. They'll just start, they'll drain the whole thing and make a mud hole to play in. So they're smart enough to figure that out. So the, the poop-free water was a, a piece of four-inch PVC with holes drilled in it so they could stick their beaks in there, and, and they still made it so disgusting I would have had to make the end removable and had to like swab it out like a chimney sweep every week to keep it from getting disgusting. So we went back to these, these tubs. I think they're about 9 or 10 or 12-gallon tubs, these big, heavy-duty rubber tubs, feed tubs for horses that you get from... Uh, tractor supply, among other places, I'm sure. And we fill those. And that way they have water, plus they can dunk their heads, and everybody's happy. And I don't want them going through the night without water. So then they started making, of course, a mess out of that. And every day that we dump it, it would end up soaking the area of the, the holding pen that they were in and making that area just god-awful disgusting. So what I did is I went out and I took some, like the flat square 12 inch cinder blocks, but they're not like the big ones. They're really, they're only a couple inches thick. Like you make, like for pavers, cinder pavers. We had some laying around. So I made a little platform. And then around that platform, I put the half size cinder blocks and I set their, their tubs in there. This is a temporary solution. So now at least when Dorothy goes out and dumps those three tubs every morning, the water flows outside of the, the duck area and it, it goes out into like the area behind her pool. There's no really earthworks there. The soils are very shallow there as there are in many places. But in that particular area, we're talking about two inches to three inches of dirt before you hit rock slab. And so the problem is now that that area is already compacted. It's already defoliated. And it's, it's just now because it's getting water dumped out on it every day. And then the ducks walk across it back and forth. It's becoming more compacted and more defoliated and more disgusting. But at least it's outside the pen. So it doesn't stink. It dries up. It dries out. It doesn't sit there and, and mix it with the wood chips and the ducks, you know, mashing it up all night long. So that was a temporary solution. The long-term solution is what you're asking about. So I'll explain that so we can explain how we get to this. So just in that area is a willow tree that I planted this year for Dorothy because she likes weeping willows. And the place we chose to plant that willow tree is a place that there had been a live oak, most likely, of all the trees that could be there. It could also have been one of the black ashes, because uh, there are some of those in the area, too, that uh, grew and, and you know fell down a rod or whatever, and the old homeowner removed it. And I call them wells, like like cenote wells in uh, in Mexico, where they have these big caves. Because they're like little miniature versions of the cenote wells. Wherever these trees have gotten to maturity, over time the roots and the humic acid and the exudates have basically bored a hole into this limestone and you'll find this hole, you know, it'll be a couple feet in diameter, three or four feet in diameter, and you can dig down four or five feet before you hit rock again. It's like the tree has bored that hole in. So into that well, we put a willow tree. Well, a little closer to where the ducks are, there's another well, and when we can, we'll get another willow tree and we'll put it in there. At the highest point of the duck holding area, what we're going to do next, we're going to build um, like a concrete tank thing out of full-size cinder blocks, 
And then on top of those will be a grate. Down inside there will be a flat poured concrete floor with a piece two inch pipe making a drain and taking, or maybe two pieces going together to make sure everything gets drained well. That whenever you t dump those tanks over up on top of that grate, the water will go down the drain and out. From that point, there'll be a split and there'll be a valve where you can decide which side you want it to go to. And those pipes will go to those two wells. Now, again, these are not wells like you think of. These are just holes in the rock with a tree planted in them. And each day we will dump all the nasty, disgusting duck water to one willow tree or to the other. That way neither side really gets overdone. And those willows need constant moisture. They need constant water. And they can take just about as much nutrient as you can give them. And when we start putting that much moisture and that much nutrient to those willows, they will take off. And they will really do a beautiful job of shading that area. Now, it just so happens that one of these willows will be in what we're going to call our north paddock for the ducks and the other in the south. So when they're out during the day, in the summertime, if they come back toward their, their holding area, either way they'll have a big, beautiful tree to be in the shade underneath. And so we need as much shade as we can get for these guys. So it's, it's a function stacking thing. We have to deal with the water. We have so many ducks, we can't you know try to do this with little bitty waters or something. We need a significant amount of water. We need to not have it mess up the area. The willows need fertility and moisture. And what we're trying to do is make it to where the actions we're already doing, nothing else needs to be done except turning one valve to determine which tree gets it each day. And the way to not forget is every day at the end of the day when you're filling the tanks back up, you turn the valve the other way. The next day it's already ready to go that way. And so we get fertilized trees. We get the wastewater dealt with. The ducks get their water, and we don't have to do any additional work. So that's really a very, very big function stacking element. It's just one of those things that we haven't gotten to yet, and it's probably one of those things I'll do in the cooler months of fall because, you know, laying brick and stuff like that's kind of tough in the heat. So there you go on that one. That probably will be something that I'll have done before the November workshop. We shall see because, boy, do I have a lot going on right now. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. I'm just curious of your thoughts on ammunition. How many rounds is too many uh we haven't had 22 long rifle in about four years i'm just starting to see it show up on the shelves again i'm thinking 10,000 is a good starting point uh curious to get your thoughts Okay, I'll start off with the fact that I, I have no problem with, let's say, having on hand 10,000 rounds of 22 long rifle ammunition. Now, if for some reason our, the, the, the government ever comes out and, and takes away your shit and arrests you for something and confiscates it, you know they'll sensationalize the newspaper. He had over 10,000 rounds. He was planning something, you know, that kind of thing. But it, it's just nonsense. The reason I'm okay with that is a brick of 22s is 500 rounds. So two bricks is 1,000. Right. Uh, so, so 20 bricks. It, it doesn't take up that much space. And if 22 will come down to what's a reasonable price, it doesn't take too much money. So when you ask how much of something is too much, my, my primary considerations are usability. Will it ever be used? So is there any purpose to having this? Not just because, you know, the shit might hit the fan, we're going to fight the Russians off with our 22 uh, Ruger 1022s, because that's just kind of nonsensical. But, I mean, 22 long rifle is something you can shoot a lot of, and you can constantly replenish your supply, and it's going to get used. The next question is how storable. How storable is the item? So it's extremely storable. 
Um, I've, I've found one time an old box that was from when I was a kid. It was 30 years old and, you know, just had a kid, Thunderbolts too, cheap ammo. And I, I threw it in a, a weapon and it functioned perfectly. So it's storable. It passes that. The next question is cost. And cost relative to other needs that you have. Now, if you're eating ramen so that you can buy another box of 22s next week, you have a problem. Okay, that, that means you've exceeded the, the cost versus value as to the other areas in your life. But if, you know, picking up a brick a week until you, you know, for 20 weeks until you have 10,000 rounds doesn't really affect you, then there's no issue there. The next thing when it comes to storage is spatial limitations. We all have two major limitations of storage, space and money. Okay, so space and money. So when we look at the space issue, you know, 20 bricks of 22 don't take up much more space than a couple car batteries. It's really just not that much space. So with all of that, you know, inked together, and then what is the potential for it to be in short supply? That's another consideration. Well, as we can see, it's been in short supply for, what, three, four years now. I personally smell stink on this. I think the manufacturers are, are, are making this, like, the biggest profitable thing they've ever done uh, because as soon as 10 boxes show up, they're gone. And, and they're being, and it's 22 selling for ridiculously high prices. On the other hand, I think we've made it worse ourselves because we've like, well, well that stuff, this is never happening again. So everybody's still in that mode. We are all still buying the hell out of this stuff unless we have our ten or 20,000 rounds put up. And then whenever we go out and spend a day at a range and go through a few hundred rounds, we're like, oh, well, I better replace that. So then we start looking for it, and we realize it's not there. And even though I don't need three bricks, if I find them, I buy them. And people are buying any brand, any type. And I understand because I'll be honest, I've done some of it too. But I smell stink here. And, and, and I don't want to be a, a tin hat conspiracy theorist or nothing, but it, it almost feels like there's some level of conspiracy here. I just don't know exactly what it is, whether it's you know starving us out. And, or I don't get it. I don't get it because this is something that people have always bought lots of. People have always shot lots of. And it's been too damn long. Six months in, I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. At this point, I'm really getting tired of it. And I think Remington and Winchester, get off your asses and make some 22s. Seriously, if anybody else, anybody there, tell these people. And I, I hear this bullshit from ammo, ammo makers, because I, I do have people that work for some of them say, we're making as much as we can every day. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're a liar. Your, your nose is growing and your ass is on fire. You're a liar. You're not making as much as you can every day. You're full of shit. Get this problem fixed so everybody can stock up on it and then things can level out. And I think really when you look at it this way, it's almost like OPEC on ammo. Like if we fix the problem, then we'll, we'll, we'll crush the demand and people won't be on it as much anymore. Well, fine. Let it go back to the way it was for, uh, for 50 years and people buy lots of it and use it every day anyway. So on that last criteria, can it go into short supply? The next one is when it goes into short supply, does it become prohibitively expensive? And I think when you see people paying $70, $80 a brick for 22 ammo, the answer is yes. So no problem with your numbers there. Now, how much is too much when you have more than you'll ever be able to use? When you start to financially strain yourself, when you've exceeded what's reasonable for your personal stores, and that means that when I look at other ammo, the amount you're going to store uh, changes dramatically. You know, if you if you use a 270 to hunt, you know, elk and deer and, and pronghorn, and you're a Western hunter, 
and you had a thousand rounds of that, it's probably enough to zero your rifle every year and shoot, you know, two deer, two pronghorn, and an elk every year for the rest of your life. And your kids could take that gun and do it, give it to your grandkids, and they could do it. And you, you probably never run out of ammo. So, well, that's plenty. Um, when it comes to things like, you know, for your AR platforms, your 223, 556, whatever you want to use the nomenclature, your 308 or 762, you know, going up to higher storage numbers, several thousand rounds or more, I understand. Now, those of you that have like 50,000 rounds, 308 vacuum sealed in tubes all over the, all over your bug out land or whatever and think you're going to fight the Russians, hey, you know what? More power to you. I don't care. That's fine. But, That's where I think you start to get into eccentricities, that there's so many things that that money and cost could be invested in that would be better for your quality of life today and in a disaster. There's a point where you personally have to say, this is enough of this item. Just like you'd say, well, have enough buckets of beans and rice, okay? I mean, this is really to feed the people that were too stupid to store food anyway. Uh, if we end up in a long-term situation... Uh, I'm more worried about being without power for two weeks in the middle of an ice storm, and, and I need to focus on that. So I think we have to put some rational thoughts in with our prepping. You know, uh, I'd rather see people with a year's worth of storable food than, than just about any other thing because it fits all the criteria well. And if the family ends up on hard financial times, it's just one thing that for a year you wouldn't have to worry about. And it's it's part of why... You know, the, the, the biggest group of preppers in this country, I, I would say, are the LDS Church, the Mormons. And that's one of their tenets of their faith is that families should have a year's supply of food. And while I'm not, uh, you know, a religious person myself, I, I recognize the good in all things when the good's there. And I think that one of the main tenets of that is, is that the LDS Church believes in taking care of other people. And if I have that stable in my life, then I can always be there to be a good steward for others. And, 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 and I will never be dependent on somebody else. Um, so I think there's a lot to be learned from that philosophy as well. So just not too much of one thing. But 10,000 rounds of 22, sure. Just, you know, it is starting to come back around. And maybe if we wait a little bit longer, we can do it without, you know, spending twice what it's really worth. Um, let's take another question. Hi, Jack. Jason from PA here with a question for an expert uh, council member, if you've got one to match it up with. It's a financial question. It may be a little bit long. But uh, my mother had 80000 lost in the 401K with the gym. And, you know, I talked to her saying a lot of that will probably be recovered. But she's also looking at taking out a loan uh, for some house repairs. And one of the things about the loan is that she pays interest on it, but the interest is paid into her own retirement fund. So really, there's no capital loss. And you've mentioned, you know, the idea of moving into cash, but I was sitting there wondering, is this actually a better option? If she were to just take $80,000 as a loan from her 401k, put that money in CDs that get an interest or two, sure, she's going to be paying 6% on that loan, But that interest is going to her, not a bank. Um, so if she removed that, that would actually be safer than cash. She'd actually have uh, a, a gain, whereas cash would probably lose. I'm just curious if you have anyone on the expert council who can maybe give some insight on that, on if borrowing and doing the loans from 401Ks is actually a way to protect your savings, similar to moving it into cash. Um. Everything you just said 
is true, especially at a time that you would not have your money in interest-gaining assets anyway. You would be sitting in a cash equivalent uh, or the, the, the lowest-risk thing like a, a low-interest bond fund, which a lot of 401ks are now left with, then... You know, you're paying your own interest. Okay, yeah, you borrow the money. Yeah, you didn't lose the money because it wasn't subject to loss because it wasn't in the plan. You know, if you do this and you have, let's say, $50,000 loan you take out and you have $50,000 worth of, uh, of a mutual fund, that, that fund is effectively liquidated. It's sold, converted to cash, and then the cash is sent to you and it's in your hands and it's owed back to your account. That's all great. And it, it, then instead of paying 6% to the bank, you pay 6% to yourself. In some ways, it's a lot like borrowing money from a life insurance policy, except that it has some tax consequences if something goes wrong. If Mr. Murphy shows up, we, we can have a major problem here. You might think, if I borrow money from myself and fail, fail to pay it back, I'm the one that loses, so no big deal. No Since you've spent the money and you don't have the money, you can't pay the money back, you have a problem when somebody else wants the money. And in this situation, it can end up being as much as 40% of what you've borrowed. So if you borrowed $100,000 from yourself, all of a sudden you can get a bill for $40,000. From who? The Internal Revenue Service. Um, if you default on your own debt to yourself simply because for one reason or another you can't pay it, Uh, your employer and your, your or your, your plan manager, if there's someone outside of your employment, will issue what's called a 1099-R. And basically, it's a, it's a, it then goes down as a distribution. It's just like you took the money out. Now you have to pay the interest, the tax, and the penalties on it as though it was income because now it's become income because you've abandoned the debt okay, by not being able to pay it. So now you owe the money to the government. Where are you going to get it? Unlike just saying, I'll take it on the chin and go ahead and give them their 40 grand so I have my 60, the money's now all tied up in something. So that's one risk that you, for some reason or another, can't afford to pay it. Now, what is the most likely reason that a person that owed their own plan money would not be able to pay it? Well, it would be because they've lost their job. Right? Okay, so to compound this, in most situations with a 401k loan, when you leave your employment for any reason, you quit, they fire you, uh, a nuclear missile blows up your office and, and there's no place to go to work anymore, whatever, you're no longer employed. And what happens then is you get the, the loan accelerates and you have 60 days to repay it before you get the big bill from Ira Ramon Sancia, which is what I call IRS, right? Biggest gangster on planet Earth is Ira Ramon Sancia. So that gets your, your debt accelerated. So at the time where even if you could maintain the payments that you most need, the, the breathing room, because you've lost your job, the loan accelerates. It gets worse. Now, let's say your mom decides, you know what? These people over here want to give me a better job, so she wants to leave on her own. Even though now she can still service the, the 401k, the loan accelerates to 60 days. Now, is it possible that the new employer would have a 401k, would become the new plan, roll uh, 401k straight rollover, and now the debt is owed to the new 401? Maybe, but probably not. So those are, so there's nothing wrong with the, the concept I'll borrow from my 401k, I'll pay it back to myself, 
you know, yada, yada, yada. But as long as you can service the debt and you're not in danger of losing your job. And the problem is you don't know if you're in danger and you're losing your job. Now, I fired a lot of people in my life, and I never told any of them they were fired until, like, you know, they were fired. You know, it's like if we knew that we're going to have to let people go at the end of a month, uh, I know you might think this is evil or, or, or something, but we generally wouldn't tell them. Well, no, they need time. Well, we always gave them severance. I would rather fire you on, on the last day of a month and give you 30 days of severance than tell you you're fired on the first day of the month and pay you for 30 more days to work to the end of the month. Because you're going to go to shit with your, your job performance. So I'm better off just paying you to not be there. And that's how we usually try to structure things. We try to structure things so between severance and people's PTO time and whatever thing, if we have to let them go, we give them as much money as they can on the way out the door, and I'd rather you have your money and be gone, go look for a job. And that's how a lot of people are. And there's certain positions in companies where if you're going to go because of downsizing or, or, or termination due to your own fault or whatever, I mean, you're walked out the door. Um, a good friend of mine listens to this show, Kathy. Her husband was there, an IT, like head of IT for a very big company. He was like three years from full retirement, and they decided to get rid of his ass. Well, you can bet he found out in HR, and he was escorted by security to his desk to pick up his shit and straight out the door because he wouldn't have done anything, but a company can't take that risk. Can you imagine what a guy with access to every single part of the information technology of a company could do uh, damage-wise, in two hours if, if he was given the opportunity because he was pissed off, or he just might make a hole for himself to access later. So there are, there are, you know, a salesperson, a salesperson is straight out the door because you don't want them to be able to have the time to gain access to customer information because you don't want them taking their book of business with them. Now, a good salesperson's like, okay, whatever, buddy, you, you believe that because good salespeople are smart. It's my business. I've earned it. If you're going to get rid of me, I'll take as much of it with me as I can. And if you don't like it, tough shit. We'll see each other in court if you want to sue me over it. You better have an ironclad, non-compete agreement with me. Oh, you don't because I didn't sign that? Tough shit, right? So there are situations where a person will not know until the very minute of their termination or terminated, and this can accelerate the debt. So those are. So it's not don't do it. It's do it with that full understanding of the consequences. Now, lots of things change. If you have a Roth, a Roth 401k, then you can take 100% of contributions out of it with no tax consequences because they are post-tax contributions. What you can't take is any gains on the contributions. So if you've contributed $100,000 to your 401k and it's now worth $250,000 due to interest and dividends and everything else, you can take up to $100,000 out of a Roth 401k or IRA with no tax consequences, which means if you borrow that amount or lower and go into default, there is no tax consequences. Maybe. I'm not sure about that. I need a CPA or somebody that knows that to tell me. Now, I know I can withdraw the money, but if I borrow it, does it change the circumstances? Because you know if the government can get it, they will. And they might tell you you owe it, and you might go through a lot of hell to convince them that you don't, even if you don't. Because, you know, they don't really get very reasonable when it comes to collecting money from people. They're quite unreasonable. The government collects every dime that it takes, threat of violence at the point of a gun. That's what you're dealing with there. So you got to understand the full circumstances. And generally speaking, I think that you need to be careful with that decision. But everything you said is true. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Scott from Kansas. My question is on soil health. 
I've heard a lot of permaculturists lately on different podcasts and stuff say that if you have healthy soil, you'll have no bugs and no weeds. And I've actually heard the quote, I haven't pulled a weed in two years. Is this realistic or is this BS? And background, I'm a first-year homesteader. I have very alkaline and clay soil. Um, I've had lots of rain this year and lots of weeds and veggies and caterpillars and cabbage worms eating everything. So I'm in the process of amending soil and building soil using mixed layered formula from Expert Council show from a month ago. So we're on the right track. Just wondering if this is even possible or if it's just BS. Thanks. Bye. To answer that question, we kind of have to ask another question first. And that question is, can something be true and bullshit at the same time? And the answer is yes, because the way it becomes bullshit is the person speaking it oversimplifies it. Like you're saying, all you need is really healthy soil. If you build the healthiest soil you can and you have truly healthy soil to give your plants everything they need, you won't have any pest problems, you won't have any weed problems. Okay, um, true, and bullshit. How do I mean that? So let's start with the, the, the common place that people do the most work in soil building because it's most necessary because weeds most compete with plants, and it's an annual cultivation gardens or farming. So let's t make it easy and stick to, to gardening. Peas, beans, uh, tomatoes, things like that. Now, if we have truly healthy soil, we'll have very little weed germination if we're actively gardening and doing the following things. Number one, planting densely so that that wonderful soil is being used by something. It's also having its space occupied. That we are routinely cultivating it. Now, that doesn't mean every day, but it means that we're going out, we're doing things like, okay, this plant's past its prime, we're going to cut it off, leave the roots in the ground, what have you, and plant something new in its place. We're doing that. Heavily mulching. If we leave exposed soil, I don't care how good it is, something's going to land there and something's going to grow. You can say that really um, fertile soils don't grow any weeds, but then that goes back to almost to Bill Clinton. You know, what is your definition of is? It depends on what your definition of is is. Well, it depends on what your definition of weed is. If your de definition of weed is the most noxious, horrible weeds that people fight on a daily basis that are so awful and so hard to get rid of, they drive you crazy and make you want to take a flamethrower to your garden, yeah. Okay. If your definition of weed is something you don't want in that place, then no. There's always something that'll grow there. There's always something that'll germinate there. And, and certain things that can be quite invasive that we don't think of as weeds, but become weeds when they get into a garden, certainly can. You almost can't over-fertilize grass. Now, you can over-fertilize things like quackgrass and crabgrass that will eventually say, this is too fertile, I am not needed. But come on, Bermuda grass... If you live where Bermuda grass grows, you can make the most fertile, beautiful, lush, and that Bermuda will crawl into it and start growing crazy. Now, is that a problem? It depends. If I'm trying to grow uh, annual vegetables, it can certainly be a problem. While some people freak out about too much grass around trees in an orchard, that covering the ground around my trees to me is an asset, so I'm okay with it. It depends. So what you have to understand is the rules that nature has. Nature has certain rules. And one is nature hates disturbances. Nature wants disturbances fixed. 
Okay. Now, maybe really hate is the word, but nature sees the disturbance as an opportunity. Whenever you look at the ground and you see raw dirt, there's been a disturbance. You might have done it. A tree might have fell over and uprooted it. You know, it, it might have been an animal that did it, but there's been a disturbance. When you see dirt that's heavily compacted, there's been a disturbance. Something's done that. When you see it really, really loose, there's been a disturbance. Right. So if there's a disturbance, nature says, ah, a disturbance, a disturbance in the force. It must be rectified. And it says, I will send something to correct the disturbance. I want this soil not compacted, but not too loose. I certainly don't want it exposed to the sun. I want it covered with something. And unless it's a desert where that can't happen, then something happens. So if I put out a beautiful garden bed of the best soil we could ever make, Elaine Ingram has come and genuflected in front of it and made the sign of the cross and blessed it as holy, okay? And I just leave it uncovered, sitting there, and come back a year from now and expect nothing to be growing there because I didn't plant anything so there should be no weeds in it. Not going to happen. Now, if I take that and I mulch it and I plant it densely and I maintain it, I'm going to have very little to no weed pressure. And, and if it's really high-quality stuff, I'm going to have a lot less pest issues. Does that mean no insect will ever eat any of my plants? No. What it means is that my plants will not be the preferred food of insect pests. It will be, I'm eating this because it's what's available, and I'll eat as much as I need, and I'll look for something else. It'll also mean the plant is so strong that, I mean, if you went out and, and, and pruned off a few inches of a tomato plant, Uh, every every two or three weeks in your garden, and they were healthy, they would just grow back and you wouldn't care. In fact, you might end up with bushier, stockier tomatoes by doing that. Some people do this on purpose. So if, you know, if one or two tomato hornworms kind of come in there and eat a little bit here and there and really don't like it and kind of just lethargically get by and they don't, it's not really stressed out, it's not really what they're looking for, you know, then you're probably going to be just fine. You'll recover from that. Okay, but if, if your tomatoes are stressed, what actually happens with plants when they're stressed is they actually become sweeter. See, nature actually wants stressed plants to go away. So it will actually be that a stressed plant begins to produce sugars in its, it, its, instead of its roots and its exudates where it exchanges them with soil organisms, it produces them above ground and that like brings the insects in. They'll also start to stress from drought and they'll be producing sugars and drying out. And insects of the world largely do not want plants that are very moist inside. They want things that are dry to, to, to tending to very dry. If you go to a place where you have irrigated and non-irrigated areas in the summer where there's grasshoppers, you would think all that lush green grass over there would be where the grasshoppers are. Where do you find the most of them? In the, the brown grass. They want the cellulose. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for the carbon. right? They don't want the nitrogen and the, and, and, and the moisture. Now, if they don't have a choice, they'll eat that. But the more of it's there, the less that they really want it. So when you have trees being eaten by grasshoppers, that's usually a tree that's being stressed. And there's so much of, of a stress factor going on. There's literally sugar being produced in the cambium. And those grasshoppers are pulling the bark away to eat the cambium. They're not actually eating the bark. They're, they're getting into that layer between the, the core of the tree and the bark of the tree. And that's what they really want because it's sweet now. That's the tree just doing all it can to survive. It's starting to, to, to transpire through its leaves, and it's sending moisture up through its stalks to do that, and that's bringing sugars up out of the roots into the trees, and that's saying, come eat me. Because the other way to look at it is nature either wants the plant to go away or it wants it to survive. And sometimes a stressed tree or bush, the best thing you could do to it is cut it down by half. 
to get it through that stressful time, and it'll butt out when there's when there's there's moisture again. So we think of a pest like a grasshopper, but nature would send a deer or an antelope that would choose that stressed out plant with the sugar in it to eat over other stressed out or other plants that are not stressed out. So it wants either lush a, a, a browser wants lush green, but when there is no lush green. Think about it. If if in nature this is happening, then those kind of like the, that's what's all that's available. Then these animals are going to take the most stressed ones first. And they're going to browse them down, and just like you can rejuvenate a diseased or sick plant by coppicing or cutting it down and having it spring back on the next growing cycle, nature does this. So because there's no deer or antelope to do this, you get grasshoppers. So soil health is very important. It can do a lot for us, but it is one component of the whole. The space has to be occupied. Disturbances have to be managed, and it has to be covered. If we do that, we can reduce weed pressure to almost nothing, yes, in optimum conditions, which we may or may not be able to pull off. And we can certainly reduce pest pressure to where it's there, but it's not really detrimental to the growth of the plant. And by having some pests, then we get enough predators to control them. So that's that's kind of a long answer to that question. It's not that it's bullshit. It's that pre it's presented in a bullshit manner. It's oversimplified to the point where it does harm to permaculture and organic gardening and homesteading and all those things that we do naturally. Because when you tell somebody that, and they get really they go to the store and they just buy the best soil they can get, which probably isn't as good as they think it is. And also, there's weeds in it. How'd that happen? Well. It ain't mulched, it's disturbed, the disturbance isn't managed, it's not planted densely enough, it's not maintained, it's not cultivated. Those things have to go along with it. Perennial tree-based systems, well, you know, how how much can, can crabgrass or dockweed or lamb's quarter really compete with an oak tree? And the answer is it can't. And sooner or later that tree will get up high enough to shade them out and outcompete them with growth and space occupation. So it really has a lot to do with where, when, how, and how stressed these plants are. Do you get good irrigation, right? Whether it's natural or man-infused irrigation, um, you, I don't care what the soil is like. If there's no water, no water, it will dry up to a point where eventually the plant will begin to suffer. It will go into stress, and it will become subject to press, pest pressure. The other thing that will happen is the ground will become so hard for anything to grow in it that something can handle the drought will be what comes back and pioneers it on the on the correction. So there you go. Let's take another one. Well, Jack, this is John in West Virginia. This is kind of a awkward request, but John in West Virginia is looking for a prepper girl. I need... I need a I need a chick, man. Just somebody that has the similar interests. Uh, maybe just you know, help me out, bro. Later. Well, I I I don't know that I can directly connect you to uh, a, a gal in West Virginia that has similar interests, but I played that because I think it's a common thing for a lot of people in this audience that are single. Uh, that are thinking, I, I really want someone to share my life with. And I, I want that. I, you know, I don't want to be the person that calls Jack and says, hey, I'm going to get a divorce if I carry my gun. Right. So I want some level of, uh, of common interest. I think we all want common interest. I think if you are um, a person that goes to church every Sunday, you're probably going to be a lot happier with a spouse who, who, who goes with you. I, I mean, you are. I mean, 
and that would make me a bad choice for you if I was a single man. You know, I, I, I would, you know, if you're a lady and you, you go to church every week and it's very important to you, then you probably don't want to be married to a, a spiritual deist. It, it's probably not going to be a, a great fit. It just isn't. You know, the reality though is people change over time, so we need to to not think that the person you meet will will just always be what they are. There's a there's an old saying that says that a man meets a woman and and and, and they decide they're going to get married and the man's thinking, I like her just the way she is. I hope she'll never change. And then she does. And the woman's thinking, he's okay except for these few things, but I'll change those in him and she can't. And that leads to a lot of tension and problems. So we should be willing to accept each other when we enter into relationships like this for who we are then with an understanding that just like all things uh, that are living change, so do we. So that's that's just part of a kind of little Dr. Phil type uh, advice going in there. Now, I, I actually would say that I think it is a good idea for people in this community that are looking to connect with others uh, for relationships, whether they be the type of thing John's talking about here, uh, or they be just, you know, friendships. And, and I think that any good relationship that learn, turns into a long-term romantic usually starts out with some level of friendship, maybe coupled with some physical attraction and things like that, too. But when I say friendship, I mean, you know, two guys that go go hunting together, or uh, gals that get together and, 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 and I don't know, do whatever y'all do, right? So, um... I'll give you one little piece of advice, John. Don't call them chicks. They, they generally don't dig that, uh, especially when you're looking for one. Uh, some don't mind, but I, I would say you're probably better off saying girl or female than chick. Um, and I do think that it's okay to be a little bit vulnerable in these situations and say, hey, I'm looking for somebody. You know, The, the problem with that, um, when I was a young man in dating, if I went out with a, with, with a gal and maybe the first or second date, she starts talking about how she's looking for a husband. Um, I just can tell you that, that there was usually not a third date. When we are out with people in these situations, and, and our hope, of course, for most people, there's some people I guess I want to be single their whole life, whatever. But for most people, like you do hope that you find that person that you want to spend the rest of your life with. Whether it's you know you're young and you're looking for that person, and hopefully it works out, and it's this you know the story of the long term marriage that one day people look back and they were together 65 years or whatever, you know. Uh, or it's more like Dorothy and I that found each other after we both went through some trials, and now we've been together 20 years. We, we, you know, or, you know, people that are my age now that have been through that and, and are still, I don't want to spend the rest of my life alone. I want so we want that. But when we look like we want it, even if the other person does too, we're, it's, it's too much pressure. It's too much pressure. It's too much, well, if this doesn't match, uh, like I'm in it for this alone. And I think we need to be more like, let's just have fun. Let's have fun. Let's go out and, and get to know a lot of people and let, let the natural bonding occur at its own pace. So I don't know that I can help you, but I do think that, you know, this is a good community to meet people in, uh, whether it be to, to set up a gun club or to find a date Friday night. Just if you do find a date on Friday night, don't put any pressure on what, you know, how it's going to work out. Let it be what it is. And I think way too many people 
put pressure on relationships and either it destroys a relationship that could be really well or a lot of times I think this is this is part of the the high divorce rate in America it creates a relationship that should not have been created it takes and it and two people manage to pull it off early and they force a bonding that really shouldn't be there and if it doesn't grow into something more if it doesn't morph into something more eventually both sides tire of the the necessary forced bonding so if two molecules bond together it becomes natural or two atoms bond together form a molecule is natural there's an energetic thing that holds those two atoms together or you got two hydrogen you know Uh, one hydrogen and two oxygen making water. So you had a hydrogen and two oxygen. It just, you don't have to make water stay together. It's actually kind of hard to get it apart once it's together. But what we're talking about is instead of that natural energetic bond between two people, a forced mesh together where there's always something I really don't like about the situation, but I'm always compromising. And, and there's people that are so desperate to have someone in their lives And they find someone that's doing the same thing. And sooner or later, you always have one wear out. And by the time one wears out on it, the other one was close anyway. And when I won't give you what you want anymore in this this, this compromise false bond, it just falls apart. And it gets really ugly if by that point kids are involved. So let nature take its course when it comes to finding people in your lives, I think. Don't try to force it. Don't look for perfection. Because perfection is what causes the force. Because it's not perfect, I'm going to force it into perfect. I'm going to convince myself that it's perfect. Let it be what it is. And, and, and when you find the person that you want to be with, but neither one of you feels like you need to be with each other, it's only choice. You found a good one. You know? that Need is something that should come years into the relationship. You've been together so long, and it's been so wonderful. You've become part of each other. The beginning of a relationship that turns into that is a relationship where it is a complete choice to be together. You could walk away, but you don't want to. That's, that's a good foundation. And that takes a certain amount of individual confidence. You've got to believe in yourself and believe that you'll be okay alone before you can really be with somebody else. I think that's why Dorothy and I have worked out. We were both there. We, we were dating for a couple of months, and both we had a conversation. I don't need you, and I don't need you either. Let's go out anyway. Sounds crazy, but it worked. Because with the other side of that, so that's that's independence, right? And you're then you're choosing cooperation. So you have a cooperative relationship. If you have dependence on both sides and you put them together, then you get what? Codependence. You want to kill a relationship? Make it codependent. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Brent from North Carolina. just had a quick comment. I uh, recently bought a generator for use with my camper, so when we went primitive camping, and thought it would be a good source for backup power. Well, what do you know? The power went out. And I thought, well, it would be a good time to try it out. And I listened to exactly what you said when... You said be prepared and practice what you do because I was tripping over drop cords in the dark, scratching my head trying to figure out what to do. So definitely practice, practice, practice because when the situation gets to that, you could be in trouble, you could end up getting hurt, anything. Thanks, man. Appreciate the show.
Yeah, definitely. I, I, and I think like the way to, to, to like do something like, okay, I've got a new generator. And I'm going to learn how to use it in an emergency. It's not to create, like, you know how you watch um, these survival, you know, sh shows on TV and then people go out in the wilderness and put themselves into a survival scenario and, and we're supposed to believe this is reality. But there are people that do this, like, so I'm going to learn to make a friction fire. So they go out in the woods having never made a friction fire and, and put themselves in the position, if I don't get a fire, I'm going to be cold tonight. And... Okay, fine. You, you, if you think that helps you, you, great. I think it makes sense to put yourself in a position where you have the best chance of making a friction fire. Make your friction fire. Get it, get it done once. Make it a little bit harder and get it done once. Then go in the wilderness with that, that, that test mentality, right? So when it comes to something like a generator, instead of trying to do it in the dark or the evening or when you only have 15 minutes, set aside a couple hours in the middle of the day. Read the instructions, watch some YouTube videos, whatever you need to do, because it might not be a generator, it be something else, and say to yourself, this is a scenario, and then go through everything that you're going to need to do in complete daylight, in a really great time, and, and when something's not working, just stop a second. See, because this is, this is where we're wired like in emergencies to get things done, get things So you put yourself in an emergency scenario in your head, well, I have to get this done anyway, so I got to do it. No, 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 what I'm going to do now is I'm going to sit down and I'm going to look at this like I'm, you know how you ever watch somebody doing something and you think, I mean, to tell a feller is business, but you're messing up and I can see all the things you're doing wrong. Do you know why you can see it and, you, and they can't? It's not because you're that much smarter than them. Well, sometimes it is, but most of the times it's not. It's because you're you're disconnected. You're sitting back as this third party observer, and you're watching the guy with the the thing wrapped around his ankle and going, "Well, of course it is. The way you laid it out, that's the only way it was gonna. You should have laid it out before you did this or after you did that." So if you get in a place where it's starting to get frustrating, just put everything down. Walk ten feet away from it and look at the scenario and, and visualize what you just did. How would I avoid this? And so what you want to do, and I've talked about this in other shows before, especially with security, is that there's two types of things. There's procedures and there's protocols. So what you want to develop is the set of procedures for the protocol when it's implemented. So what I mean by that is the protocol is the power is out. Get the generator up and going. That's a protocol. Right? It's time sensitive. When this occurs, this is the response. The procedure is how the protocol is implemented. So that procedure it, you know, might be something like the best place to put the generator is in this spot. So in your practice, you figure that out. So that becomes, you know, and for a lot of people, it really helps to document, write that down or mark it somehow, document it. And the procedure is that it makes sense to run two main electrical uh, extension cords, one off of each side of the, 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 these breakers on this, this generator, one to the west side of the house and one side to the east side of the house through these windows with these windows closed. And since I'm going to be running space air conditioning or space heating during this time, I don't want that window really cracked open. So having some foam to stick in that window that will protect The, uh, the extension cord, yet let me actually keep the windows shut, that's going to make sense. It, I can't air condition the whole house with this, so this is the best room, or that is the best room, or these are the two best rooms to put my, my air conditioners in, or these are the rooms to move my kerosene heaters to, or whatever it is. And then to build a kit that goes with that generator. So you have a Rubbermaid tub, every extension cord, every power plug, everything you need for that, that procedure 
to be implemented during that protocol goes in there and it's practice to get you there. Right? And you, you'll find out that you could fumble through it six times and get really good at it. Or you can probably go through it one time if you, if you take that, that third party observer attitude. Right? There's people, like, there's times people ask me questions and I go, I'm not Yoda, man. And then people will say, dude, I just listened to the way you answered three questions today. You are freaking Yoda. You have answers for everything. Because I'm not emotionally vested. Don't think I can clear shit up in my own life as easy as I can for other people. It, it, you know you should be able to, but it's hard when, when it's, when it's, you know, it's your family member who's hurting or it's, it's your risk that might not pay off or what have you. But when you can pull yourself back and look at it from a distance, you know what you would do. And there's so many times that I talk to people when it's when it's personal, over the phone or by Skype or face-to-face, -face, and they'll say, well, what do you think I should do? Boom, boom, boom. And I'll lay the whole thing out, and I'll say, tell me a little more about it. And I'll say, now you tell me what you think you should do. And you can tell they know. But they're having trouble admitting it because they're too close. Well, it's the same thing with procedures. If you backed up, you'd say, dude, go buy another extension cord. But you know what you're thinking? I don't want to spend another 50 bucks. But if you were standing back from her, you'd go, 50 bucks is totally worth it, right? So that's, that's the way to handle these things. It's not just to practice them, but to pr practice them with the intention to develop the, the procedures to match their protocol. So that you know exactly when to implement them and during that protocol, what proceed, cause you might have different protocols or different, and different sets of procedures to match them for the same thing. If the power goes out, uh, at, at nine o'clock in the morning on a beautiful fall day, the, the, the speed of implementation might be far different than if the power goes out in the middle of summer, it's really hot out and you got a baby in the house. Right? So you have different senses of urgency. You know, is the power out because some fool hit it with a car, hit the power pole with a car? It's relatively nice outside. You don't really want to pull the generators out. You know, you don't need to. There's linemen are already starting to do the job. Or was there an ice storm? It's going to be out for a week or more, right? And you don't want to let the house get cold. You know, you don't want it, you don't want it to go too long. You want to get everything up and running and operational. Develop different procedures for different protocols in different situations. And uh, I think we have one more. We'll wrap it up for the day. Hey, Jack. This is Rick uh, right outside uh, down in Florida, Pennsylvania. Um, let's just call in. I, I plan on moving um, to, a, to a homestead, one to three acres we're looking for. But we're probably still about a year, maybe a year and a half away from actually moving. Um, so I'm wondering, like, what steps I should start taking, like, um, like what are some of the things I can do? I have a current bush that I cut a couple of um, branches off to try and sprout them. I have raspberries, blackberries. I have a four-in-one apple tree I got from Rain Tree Nursery. Um, I'm just trying to think about what I can do with my perennials so that, you know, I can start planning for that, that homestead. So I don't have as much cost in the in the beginning when I get there, and any other suggestions you might have, you know, looking that far out um, to start, you know, planning that stuff. All right, thanks a lot. Well, let me tell you, you, you probably shouldn't do as much as you think you should do from a standpoint of acquiring plants. 
Um, now, if you're taking cuttings and making small plants from those cuttings, I mean, that's always a good thing. It doesn't really cost anything. But I, I made this mistake. You know, I got some patio peaches and stuff like that when I was in Arlington. I knew we were going to go to Arkansas. I had them all potted up, and they, did re they got really pretty. And I mean, got one, one of them gave me like two peaches. Um, but then I had to get them all the way up there. Now, if you, if you end up moving... Uh, You know, a half hour away or 45 minutes away, it's really not a big deal. But if you have a distance to travel, you start thinking about trees, especially if you end up at a time of year where they're leafed out. You've got a pretty good-sized pot. You've got this tree, and if it's in the wind, it gets beat up. So thrown in the back of a pickup or something like that. It doesn't really stack well. So if you end up with, like, 10 potted trees, you could end up with a whole extra trip just to get those trees to where you're going to go to. So I think that you're, you're better off spending this time doing things like I would really recommend you get over to jefflawton.com and watch his videos, specifically one of the first or second videos in the series that he has there for free, where he talks about property, you know, determining what property to have and a property checklist, water access structure. Now, if you're looking at a one to three acre property, it's not going to be as critical. Right when you're talking about you know 60 acres and putting cattle on it, that stuff is really really critical because you can spend a lot of energy and a lot of money putting infrastructure, if, if they, especially if things are wrong, and then spend a lot of money putting infrastructure in a place that doesn't really work or causes problems. But you still learn a lot from that line of thinking and start planning what you really want to be able to do. And I, so I'll put it to you this way: Let's say that you decide I'm going to buy this tree. This tree costs thirty dollars. I'm going to buy this tree. I'm going to take care of it for a year and a half, and then I'm going to take it where I'm going, and I'm going to put it in the ground. And in that year and a half, I'll get some growth out of that tree. What's probably going to happen is that tree is going to expand out till it gets to the edge of that flower pot and start sending roots in circles. It's going to become root-bound. It's not going to grow very much. And when you plant it, you're going to have a lot of work to do with untangling roots, where you could just take that $30 and put it in a thing we call a savings account, Or a little box that says, money for permaculture when I move, and, and keep it in a, in a little strong box in your closet, and let somebody else take care of a tree, and dig it up and, and prune it off to a beautiful bare root and ship it to you the week that you're going to plant it. And, and you can see which one financially and logistically makes more sense. And, and that's kind of the thinking that you, you, you need to engage in. Now, again, I don't want to dissuade you from learning and, and doing things like that, but, like, I did hold, like, I made some mistakes. I also made some good choices. Like, I held back on a lot of things I wanted to do in Arlington because I knew we were going to leave. And I didn't want a permaculture project halfway where people can't really see what it could become. So I wanted it to look pretty much like every other house in the neighborhood, only better. So don't do things that would hurt your resale value. Focus right now on finding the perfect property and doing the best you can with your property. Extract the maximum amount of capital out of it. I'd rather see you take two to $3,000, build that up, and invest it in the house you live in today to put brand new paint and wherever you can afford to, new flooring, carpeting, whatever in that house. And, and make sure that when you sell that house, it sells fast for the most money as possible. Then take that money on closing day, take a piece of it aside, and use it toward investing in your new home. This is, uh, there's a lot of people in the, I put this, this at the end of today's show for a reason. There's a lot of people in this audience that are right where you are. And I've been there myself. And, and again, when you, when you look at moving 10 trees, you should start thinking about stacking them all together and, You know, going down the road, and there goes all your leaves flying off the trees, tearing them up. 
So now I got to lay them down in a pickup truck. I, I'm going to move four hours. I got to make an extra four hour drive. What's the gas cost me? What's the time cost me? I could have been moving other things in. Now, again, like taking cuttings from your currents and all, you're talking about small plants, pretty easy to transport. And even if you end up giving them away, you develop the skills. So think about that too. How can you develop the skills? that you're going to need. Start learning more about design, doing more research. And I would tell you really, I'm guilty of this one too, it makes a lot of sense to get on the site and determine the plant that's right for the application versus have your ideas married to the plant. You know, I killed a lot. I talked about this recently this week. I killed a lot of trees here, guys. I'm like, I'm going to grow cherries here. It's alkaline. It's 105 degrees. Cherries don't like Texas as it is. Uh, and this is as bad as it gets in Texas for a cherry. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. And I killed, you know, 70% of the cherry trees I planted. And the ones that are growing, hey, I have a couple that look really good right now. I have some, I have some that I thought looked good two weeks ago that look like hell right now. We'll see. But it'll probably never really be worth it. For me to have those cherry trees, it probably would have been better to throw a jujube in there in the first place, you know. But I, I, you know, I learned by doing. But I think if you start buying stuff, then you get there. You, I got to put it somewhere, right? And you get in this this impetus. Uh, I have a new rule for myself. I do not let myself buy trees and plants anymore until I say when this plant comes, it's going in that spot, and that spot is ready or will be ready. So I ordered 200 locust trees. Okay, a hundred of them are going to my west pasture. That space is not ready for them, but the space being prepped is part of the November workshop. I have to order them now for them to go in, and so they're they're lined up. Hopefully they'll be here and we'll be planting them at the workshop. If they're not, the space will be prepared, and when they get here, we'll pop them in the ground. Right? The other the other hundred are getting dispersed through the existing food forest. There's a place for them to go to. So the place is ready and it's chosen, and when they get here, they can go in the ground. What I, what, the, you know, part of why I killed so many trees is I had trees that were planted out of, planted out of time. In other words, because I was running a class, I held off on planting, or because I bought trees because I could get a good deal on them, and then they got here and I didn't really know what to do with them. You know, they sat for a while. When I finally put them in a place, it really wasn't the best place. So hold back. I know it's hard because you're excited, but hold back a little bit. And, you know, and this is this is a good time to develop skills and knowledge and and work on your thinking. Start walking around your house and say, if I was going to design this house, how would I design this house? If I was going to go full bore. If I told, somebody told me you're staying here, right? You live in an apartment, go find a house somewhere. Just go find somebody's house. Just you know, don't sit there too long. Kind of sit out in front of it. Pull up Google Earth. Just start picking places. Just find a place. That's about looks. You know, look at look at houses you're shopping for anywhere. And start designing. Pick one you're not going to buy so you don't get married to it, right? Because it can either affect your ability to design effectively, right? Or you can come up with a design you're so in love with you're going to be stupid and trying to buy it. So, like, pick a house that's like, you know, a state away that you'll never move to uh, on realtor.com and, and design it. Just, just half ass design it. And then ask yourself, what's wrong with that? This is what I would suggest that you work on now. And I think that's good for you know permaculture with, from urban to, to full bore broad acre uh, to farmsteading to just you know people that just want a simple homestead, but they're going to be putting a few trees or whatever, put in a workshop or whatever it is that does it for you. If you're going to be heading to that, think more about what you can do uh, and, and how you can set up and how you can design it. Start making mistakes mentally and identify them before you put them on the ground when you eventually get there. Use that time for that. Save your money. 
what I would say is every time you say, I could buy this tree, okay, how much is that tree, what's the tax on it, what's the shipping, whatever, okay, that would be $40, okay, $40 into the permaculture envelope, I can even staple a card to that that says apple tree, you know, chujupi, whatever, and when I take it out, do I still want that, if so, I remember what it was for, if not, I'll do something else with it, that would, it's much easier to transport $2,000 in cash to your new home than $2,000 worth of trees. That's my thoughts. Now, let's finish up a little bit different today than we do. I've been putting different music on for you that I want you to hear. Um, recently, I played a song by a guy named Warren Zevin. Many of you guys know who he is. Many don't. Uh, this is a guy that I find out a lot of people, especially in their 20s, early 30s, never even heard of this cat. There was a movie a long time ago called Werewolves of London. Uh, and uh, there's a song kind of about that whole thing. And there's also a movie back in the 80s um, with uh, Tom Cruise in it called The Color of Money, and that song's in, in there too. And that, But that's I'm just kind of telling you that because, you know, you may have never heard of this guy, and that might ring a bell for you, Werewolves of London. I'm going to play a different song by him today. This song is called Lawyers, Guns, and Money. And... Uh, I chose it for you guys because we talk about disasters here. We talk about preparing for certain things to happen. And there's one line in this song, give it a listen to. When you'll hear it, you'll know. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Guns and money. Huh. Uh. Send lawyers, guns and money.